What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today's guest is philosopher and author, David Livingston Smith. And we're talking about his brand new book, Making Monsters. All right. So David might sound a little familiar because he is returning to the podcast last time he was on, we talked about his previous book on inhumanity. That was actually how I was introduced to David and his work. And yet David and I, we discuss his new book and David, he researches and studies, you know, inhumanity, dehumanization, and just a lot of the atrocities that go on in the world. And we actually dive into a really interesting discussion. Like I ask him, you know, what his background is like, why, why did you get interested in this? And what's great is that I learned and you'll hear in the conversation, David was actually, you know, uh, in psychology prior to switching to philosophy. And we talked a little bit about why he made that transition and all of that, but he, he dove into this because he realized like nobody was researching this. Nobody was writing about this. So we have some great conversations. We talk about essentialism. We talk about just you know, how and why people dehumanize others and a, a lot of great topics from his book. He's, he's just such a knowledgeable and wise dude when it comes to this stuff. And one of the other things I love about David is he is one of the most chill people I have ever spoken to in my life. Like, I like to think that I'm pretty chill. You know, I can have a lot of conversations with, a pe- with like people I disagree with, but then like I meet David and talk with David. I'm like, dang you are chill. So I ask him how he's able to do that and all that stuff. But, you know, we also talk about, you know, uh, all of the political polarization, because one of the fears that I have is that we're going to start dehumanizing each other just for, you know, our political views and stuff. So we chat a little bit about that as well. So yeah, make sure you head down to the description, follow David over on Twitter and grab a copy of making monsters. It's out now it's actually been available for a little while they had some weird stuff at the release date but it's been out so some of you might have already read it anyways head down to the description grab a copy of this book but yeah before we get started with this conversation if you're not yet make sure you are following me over on instagram and twitter down in the description there's links to uh all of my social media this way i can chat with all of you so many of you send me great you know book recommendations and i love chatting and you know seeing what your guys's thoughts and opinions are on different topics and everything and if you're following me you don't miss any of the updates i write a lot um i recently just yesterday had a sale on my book rewire your anxiety you might have missed it so make sure you follow me on instagram and twitter so you don't miss any of that stuff it's at the rewired soul all right but anyways without further ado here's my conversation with david livingston smith about his brand new book making monsters All right. Hello, David. Thanks so much for joining me again. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Chris, and thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You were kind enough to send me an early copy of this new book, Making Monsters. So for those uh, in the audience who are new and have yet to meet you and, you know, be introduced to your work, can you give a little bit of your background, what you teach, what you study and all that kind of stuff? Sure. Uh, I've, I've had two careers. In my previous career, I was a psychotherapist Ooh. in England. Oh, and wow. I, I switched to philosophy in my, oh, in my late 30s. 
early forties, early forties. Um, and I live here in New England. I teach at the University of New England in Southern Maine, and I teach philosophy. And because we're a sc small school, I teach all sorts of things outside of my mm. particular focus. In fact, there's only one course I teach, which is part of my research focus, which is on race and racism. Mm. Uh, but for the last oh, 12, 13 years, I have been researching the phenomenon of dehumanization and mm. uh, I've written three books on the topic. Yeah. Yeah. And before we dive into the book, I'm, I'm curious, like, I didn't realize your background was, was in psychology. And, you know, I've noticed that I've noticed that with quite a few academics, right? Like this kind of crossover with psychology and philosophy. What, mm. what happened in your career where you were, you, you decided to make that, that switch over? Okay. Well, that's complicated story. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. <laughs> How many hours do you have? <laughs> let, let me, let me make a long story bearable. I started to grow disenchanted with the, uh, the psychotherapy industry. Ooh. I think psychotherapists don't really know what they're doing and perhaps cause as much harm as they Ooh. call good. And I, I couldn't with a clear conscience proceed. Now I had, I had already gotten a PhD in philosophy. I sort of Ooh. stumbled into that because I wanted to get a PhD and that was the most straightforward pathway for all sorts of reasons. I did my dissertation on Freud as a philosopher. And so when I, it was really after I came to this country from England, which mm -hmm. was 21 years ago, that I started taking my philosopher credentials seriously and, and, you know, calling myself a philosopher and teaching philosophy. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, you know, I've, I, I had a whole week dedicated to, you know, people coming on, like I had Dr. Alan Francis on here and stuff with kind of issues with overdiagnosis. Cause my background's in like, uh, treatment and everything like that. And, you know, I've kind of noticed some things, but yeah, that totally makes sense. And I, I guess it makes sense too, after, you know, reading your books, you, you do take that kind of psychological angle at points and try to discuss these. So with the, with the topic of dehumanization, right? What, what kind of sparked this interest? So in the new book, you kind of talk about how academics aren't really studying it that much and researching it. So aside from like kind of that gap, when did you kind of, or was there anything that you kind of recognized or was it a certain yeah. situation? Well, the, you mean, what sort of triggered me getting into, mm -hmm. I mean, there is a backstory, which was the fact that I was raised in the deep South in the Jim Crow era, sixties. Mm. And that, that was very much part of my life, part of my experience being mm -hmm. in that world. And I was also brought up in an extended family with my maternal grandparents who were both Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of autobiographical stuff, which has always been part of me, mm -hmm. but the, the, the more immediate trigger was when I was writing a book that came out in 2007 called the most dangerous animal it was about war. And when I was researching that, I encountered all this dehumanizing wartime propaganda, you know, the enemy as a vicious predator or as a predatory ape or as vermin, oh. as game animals to be shot. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Uh, let's look into it a bit more. And I found the literature was like really, really limited. Yeah. Uh, virtually all of it was in social psychology, nothing 
really in my own discipline of philosophy. And I wasn't real happy with the way that social psychologists were addressing humanization. And I found there was not one single authored book on the subject in the entire English language. Mm. So, well, that's kind of a beautiful situation when you find something that really interests you, something that you think is really important and something that you could make a genuine contribution to the literature. Uh, so that's what launched me into writing my first book on dehumanization, which was less than you and came out in 2011. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote that, it was kind of, it was a voyage of discovery, right? Yeah. I, I was making it up as I went along and just going through lots of different literatures, history, philosophy, psychology, psychiatry, anthropology, to find these odd bits of information that I then tried to weave together in the book. Mm -hmm. And that's what got me started. And once you start something like that, you realize that, well, to really understand dehumanization, you have to understand a lot of other things, a lot of other things about how the mind works, about the origins of certain concept, concepts we have of the human, Whoa. about how race, race and racism feed into dehumanization. So it's been an ever-expanding research project. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to me. There's there, you know, I, I read so many books and there's kind of that common saying, like, you know, everything that's been like discussed or written, but I am regularly finding books and little nooks and crannies where I'm like, nobody has talked about this. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy your writing. And you kind of touched on it just now and you discussed this in the introduction to the new book, Making Monsters. But can you kind of explain for people who maybe have read the previous books, what are the main differences? Is this more of an updated version of the first book or how has it changed? Okay. So the, it is definitely uh, updated since the first book. So like I said, I was working it out as I went along yeah. first book and then 10 years passed. And of course that gave me an opportunity to delve deeper to, uh, to be responsive to addressing shortcomings, my previous account of dehumanization, mm. uh, to really furnish my dehumanization theory house, as it were. Uh, so last year I came out with a book called on inhumanity. We talked about it together, mm -hmm. um, dehumanization and how to resist it. Now that book updates the first one in significant ways, but it's also written for a very, very general audience. So it's not a book you, you don't have to be like deeply engaged with the topic to benefit from reading that book. Mm. And I tried to make it very accessible, very non-academic. Making Monsters addresses many of the same topics of honored humanity. Although it also addresses some additional ones, but in much, much greater depth. Mm -hmm. So you could think of on in humanity as the undergraduate version and making monsters is the graduate version, but that doesn't mean making monsters is boring. I try to write for everyone and mm -hmm. try to write in an engaging ways, but it addresses it in much greater depth, much greater detail, lots more examples that have not appeared in any of my previous mm -hmm. books and so on. Yeah, well, I, I can definitely say like you you did a great job with that. As somebody who read On Inhumanity and, you know, I'm, I, like I was saying before we got on, I'm almost done with Making Monsters. I see the differences and yeah, it doesn't seem like 
repeat information. And, you know, something I, I've really enjoyed about this book is kind of the studies that you go into. And maybe because I am a psychology nerd, I, I, I really enjoy some of those and the different thought experiments from philosophers. But, you know, for people who are kind of new to this, like before I was introduced to your work, right? There's kind of all these terms and phrases thrown around and you break them down in the word. So to study this, can we kind of like break down some definitions, right? So there's like dehumanization and you, you kind of discuss how like it doesn't have to include certain other things, like maybe, you know, racism or other topics. So can you kind of break that down a little bit in the main definitions? Sure. I, I think the way to start with that is just to note that the meaning of dehumanization as it's used is all over the map. People mm -hmm. use it all kinds of ways. And it, it generally casts more heat than light when people say something is dehumanizing or an example of dehumanization. And I think this does us a great disservice mm -hmm. uh, for two reasons. One is I think dehumanization, as I understand the term, which I'll explain in just a minute, is a really, really, really important and really special and to toxic phenomenon associated with the very, very worst things that human beings have done to one another and continue to do to one another. Mm -hmm. The other reason is, you know, there are lots of bad attitudes that people have. There's racism, there's sexism, there's homophobia, there's transphobia and so on. And in order to do these things justice, we have to look at them as they are in themselves, not lump them all together under one big umbrella, because they all have different dynamics. They all work differently. So that being said, there's not a right definition and a wrong definition of dehumanization. It's just used in lots of ways. So anyone writing about it or talking about really owes their listener a, a clear definition of what they mean. So what do I mean? I mean, by the word dehumanization, the attitude of thinking of others as less than human creatures. So it's an attitude. It happens in people's heads. Mm -hmm. It can't be understood only in terms of what happens in people's heads, because what makes dehumanization happen has to do with what people's heads are in. It has to do with their political and social environment, the ideologies and propaganda that impact on it. Um, so. You'll notice in that definition, I didn't say less than human animals. I said creatures. And right. that, of course, connects us right away with the title of the book, Making Monsters. Really, the worst kind of dehumanization, the kind that we see in genocide, the kind that we saw in the mass lynchings during the Jim Crow era, mm -hmm. is, is, is one that treats the victim, not simply as vermin or as a, a non-human predator, but as demonic and monstrous, you know, mm -hmm. just boiling over with evil and destructiveness. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I wonder, I, I do my best to be an optimist, right? And I read a lot of books. I got really interested in just topics like you know, tribalism and biases. I'm really into like evolutionary psychology and understanding, you know, how, you know, how to identify people uh, from different groups. And there's a lot of research, like it, it drives me bonkers when people, uh, you know, either don't realize or they're just in denial that things like racism and biases exist because we were designed that way. So when it comes to topics like 
dehumanization, right? Is this something that is can go away or can be worked on? Or, you know, is it a cultural thing within our households? Where do we start? Or is it part of our ingrained human nature, like just how we recognize faces and see people from different groups? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of a little of both. It's, it's the same with, with racism. So obviously we're capable of dehumanization and racism. Yeah. So there's something about us that makes us capable of these things. Some psychological tendencies and dispositions. That doesn't mean that racism and dehumanization are built into us. It just means that uh, our, there are aspects of our psychology that are responsive Whoa. to certain kinds of social forces. Um, so that tells us right away, even without the more detailed story about how dehumanization works, that, yeah, it's something we can do about, we can do something about racism and we can do something about dehumanization. And just by the way, as I make clear in a whole chapter in the new book, racism and dehumanization are just intimately connected. Mm -hmm. It's although they're distinct, racism typically sets the stage. Um, so what are those psychological dispositions on the one hand that we could address to help us, help, help us to, to resist these forces and what's going on in the world outside of our heads that, in, that inclines us to to think about others in this way. And therefore that we could kind of push back against mm -hmm. out there. Well, inside of our heads, there are basically two things. One, one is called psychological essentialism. It's, it's a phenomenon that's been researched. Oh gosh, for the last 30 years or so by psychologists. And what that is, is a tendency that, that we have to divide the world up into like what philosophers call natural kinds, things like biological species. Um, and then assume that whatever member would, whatever makes an individual, a member of one of these groups is something deep inside of them. That's invisible. Yeah. And something that all and only members of the kind as philosophers like to, that's the language we like to use possess. So. You know, what makes porcupine a porcupine? Then well, it's not how it looks. It's what it is inside. It's mm -hmm. that, that way of thinking. Because you could have all kinds of mutant porcupines, right? That don't yeah. fit the stereotype. So racial thinking works in exactly the same way. It's, it's, it's essentialistic. What makes someone a member of a race? Well, it's something inside, in the blood. Mm -hmm. uh, that is handed down the bloodline. And the appearance of a person is seen as symptomatic of that inner something. So mm -hmm. race is supposed to be what you are, not how you look, how, what you are. And appearance is only important as kind of a way of drawing conclusions about the kind of person mm -hmm. person is. Now, scientifically, this is all nonsense that the biological world doesn't work yeah. out, but we have this stubborn tendency to think that way. Um, now. Part of that way of thinking allows that how a thing appears may be different from what really is inside. 
I gave the example of the porcupine. I would say, you know, the typical porcupine is grayish brown. Well, you can have an albino porcupine. Mm-hmm. You can have a mutant porcupine that looks more like another kind of, looks more like a beaver than a normal porcupine. Mm-hmm. The, that, that essentialistic way of thinking was, hey, it's still a porcupine, it just looks like a beaver. And that explains how when people dehumanize others and they think of them as less than human creatures, they can fully accept that the other looks human, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm a Jew and you, the listener, whoever that is, let's say you're a Nazi. I hope you're not really one. <laughs> um, and you think of me as subhuman. Well, how does that work? Cause I don't look subhuman. Um, I don't mm-hmm. behave in subhuman ways, ah, but on the inside where it really matters, you are subhuman. So that's one bit. The other bit has to do with, well, how do we get the idea of subhumanity? And this is this tendency that we have to think of nature as a hierarchy. So there are higher and lower beings. Uh, this was explicit in the middle ages when you know, scholars would draw these diagrams of like a, looked like a tree yeah. with God at the top and then archangels, angels, human beings, mammals, and so on down, down, down. And, uh, it's implicit now. So we just tend to think this way. It's, it's built into our moral psychology. I don't think it's innate, but I think it's part of our cultural heritage and it gets ensconced in us very early on. Um, it's also scientific nonsense, right? Darwin yeah. wrote one of his letters, never use the words higher and lower. That's just not part of the scientific picture of things. So that gives us the idea of subhumanity. So if you think of someone as being on the inside, um, really a creature lower down the hierarchy than the human, that's part and a very important part of the psychology mm-hmm. of station. Now, the other side, which I said, and you can interrupt me any time, Chris. No, just, I, I love learning okay. about this. <laughs> so go, keep going. Look. You can tell me, shut the hell up. I don't take a great split. Um, so the other thing has to do with how human culture works. There are more bells and whistles on this, but let's, let's get this point across. Most of the things we believe we get from other people. They're not things we've seen or heard or tasted or touched. And thank God. We do, because we would be living in a very primitive state if knowledge wasn't handed down from generation to generation to generation. You know, you don't have to touch the poison ivy to know that it'll hurt you. Your mother tells you that and you accept it. So, so when you're a kid, if you do accept it, not all kids are so trusting. Yeah. You accept it because you grant your mother a certain kind of authority, right? She's supposed to know. And it's, it's really a leap of faith because you haven't touched the poison ivy, right? You know, it's not part of your experience. Mm-hmm. This deference to those who are supposed to know makes human culture possible. Philosophers sometimes call it the division of cognitive labor. We have the experts. Your mom was an expert on poison ivy or mm-hmm. on stoves and so on. But we have all kinds of experts, people who are supposed to know. Now they don't always merit our respect, right? They're people who claim to know, 
but don't really know that and are and yet are granted a certain kind of status now here's a good example of someone who's supposed to know um so you see a ring on my finger here mm -hmm. it's white metal um suppose i think it's white gold well i don't know i'm not a metallurgist so i take it to a jeweler and they determine its specific gravity they weigh it and they say no it's silver Ooh. now i accept that why because they're the expert in my view they're supposed to know and i i trust them similarly when the physicist says the desk in front of me is mostly empty space well doesn't look like it to me but i accept it because Ooh. the physicist is supposed to know but what happens then when the expert says these people these African Americans, these Jews, these Rohingya, whatever. Mm -hmm. They might look, they look human to you, I understand, but you just don't know. On the inside, there's something else. On the inside, they're dangerous subhuman creatures and real, they need to be confined or incarcerated or exterminated. Well, we're vulnerable to that because of the conditions of human culture, of accepting the views of those who are supposed yeah. to. Yeah. So that suggests, um, the importance both of enlightened skepticism, but also as of having robust institutions to ensure that people who are supposed to know really do know. Yeah. Yeah, we really do know, uh, but it's, you know, it's not, that's not a safeguard, right? So we can track ourselves, understanding our psychological dispositions. We can try and be vigilant with ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can try to make sure the world, the social world around us doesn't promote these toxic, dehumanizing, racist ideas. Mm -hmm. but both of those things can be overridden. We, when, when in situations where we feel as human beings helpless. And we, and there's something in us that looks for salvation from mm -hmm. a powerful propagandist. It's easy to just slip into these terrible ways of thinking. Similarly, every social institution can be corrupted by people who want us to do harm to others. Yeah. So, yeah, I, um, we talked about this a little bit the last time you were on, I'm, I'm really interested in the topic of essentialism. So I was first introduced to essentialism uh when reading paul bloom's work right and then i started reading your book and i started seeing because you know uh in something like paul bloom's i, I think it was in his book how pleasure works right yes. we talk about you know my grandma gives me something and then you know i i believe it has this essence of grandma in it and you know, I read books on supernatural belief, like Bruce Hood has a great book. He was on here with, uh, and, you know, we talked about that, that idea of, you know, would I, would I wear the cardigan of a serial killer? No, I believe it had some kind of serial killer evil essence in it. And I see this, I see this kind of overlapping. So when I was reading your book, I'm like, you know, so it's difficult for me because I'm, I'm the type of person where, you know, there's so much going on in the world. It's like, what should I care about? I can only care about so many things. So should I care about somebody believing that this thing's haunted or this thing has evil? But I get worried about that kind of snowball effect because if I'm growing up with this idea that something has an essence, and I was actually just in the part of your book where you talk about this philosopher had this thought experiment of a 
of a black man, right? If he were to go and just change his skin color to white, just boom, goes into a white society and lives there and they survey people and say, hey, is this guy white or black? And like 51% thought he was black. So I'm really curious about that. So maybe you can help me break this down. I recently read this book called Rising Out of Hatred. It's about uh, Derek Black leaving the white nationalist party. Mm -hmm. uh, his uncle was like David Duke and all sorts of stuff. And he was, he was supposed to be like the successor for the KKK, right? So he got out of it. And, and I, I read that book and I'm like, it's just some kind of roadmap. And it was him interacting with people. But when I'm listening to you and we're talking about this essentialism, it's almost like when somebody has that in them and they believe that there is this essence. So even if I get to know you, it, it feels like the essentialist part of me is going to be like, there's something in you that's just waiting. And I think you talk about this in the book. Like, it's like a con, right? So somebody's not fitting those stereotypes. But then we have somebody like Derek Black. So in order to feed my optimism, why do you think that happens? And as you were talking, I'm like, was he more of a supremacist than somebody who thought that, you know, Jews and Black people and all these had some kind of essence? What do you think that is to create this roadmap to pull people out of that type of thinking. Well, you know, um, I think here's how we have to address it. I, I doubt very much if we can, or even that if we should, um, cure people of essentialism. Yeah. It's just there. It's, it's a tendency we have, but it doesn't have to take toxic forms. That's what we should be worried about. Mm. And we can certainly help people to get over the, the really toxic, awful, dangerous forms of, of, um, essentialism as is exemplified in, in the case that you mentioned, mm -hmm. I, and it's, it's true of racism generally and beliefs about race more generally, you know, I have this view, which, uh, most people disagree with me about, which is that racism is built into the very concept of race. Mm. It's an essentialistic notion. It's, it's scientifically, uh, vacuous. Um, and it was invented to oppress people. Mm -hmm. The history of, of the idea of race is a terrible history. It's got nothing to be said for it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, it came into being to justify atrocity. So. That's an arena where you want to pull people out of essentialism. And, you know, that can be done in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, they have something in common, which is uh, interactions with, with others. And, you know, with mm -hmm. the Derek, Derek Black story, that was really, really important. So one is education. Um, you, you can show people that these ideas about race are just false. If to the, to the extent that they're reachable through evidence and reasoning, then you mm -hmm. can show them that, mm. but you know, some people aren't reachable in that kind yeah. of growth. They're, they're deeply ideologically committed to their, their positions. Um, and, and in those cases, it's much harder, but in my interactions with such people, I really tried to be open to them and express genuine curiosity mm -hmm. and, and, and respect for them. I mean, whatever beliefs anyone has, 
there's some reason, there's some path that got them there. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, shaming them or shouting them down or something, that's, that's the, like the worst thing to do Mm -hmm. if you want to get through to someone. So even, you know, I haven't, say I have an interaction online with a, uh, with a white supremacist, anti-Semite, and I let them know I'm Jewish, but, and, and they will probably resist listening to me, Yeah, but they're going to go away maybe with a modified view. Yeah. At, this guy wasn't so bad, you know. He, he wasn't Furman. He wasn't trying to exploit me. He, he was, mm-hmm. he was decent. So even if this person can't admit it publicly, it's possible to plant a seed of doubt. The problem yeah. is, the problem is, Chris, there are lots and lots of people pushing for the other, right? Mm. Are, are inculcating racist and demonizing beliefs. Yeah. And psychologically. Fear works really well. I mean, fear is really motivating. So if you scare people into, into holding on to these, these beliefs, you're likely to be more successful. (laughs) Yeah. It's a more reasonable approach. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And it's, it's something that's, you know, being utilized by so many, so many people, right? Uh, and even just, you know, looking at Trump's presidency and just some stuff that we see in the news about, you know, immigrants and things like that, just this fear. So here's something, and I, I think you're, you're a great person to ask. So I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, fostering this kind of curiosity and staying calm. So I, I believe that, you know, I, I, I think that curiosity is just one of the best things that we could do because in when I started learning mindfulness and meditation, I believe it was one of my meditation teachers. And he said, like, curiosity is like the opposite of like judgment, right? So for example, I brought I I think I think I have like a hundred episodes of this podcast now since May. I've had so many different authors with so many different views, and some of them I don't agree with, but I sit here for an hour, whatever it is, and I try to understand. I'm like, where is this person coming from? how were they raised? What's their background? Where did this come? And I just stay chill. And sometimes I wonder, I'm like, am I some kind of like sociopath or something with no emotions? But, but I look at you, you are such a chill guy, but it's so hard for people to not get angry. Like when someone comes up and says something very, you know, racist or sexist or whatever it is, it wants to come out. And there's often a conversation, you know, so there's uh, the, the stereotype of like the angry black woman. Right. So for example, like my sister, she's black. I'm biracial. My, I look white. My sister, you could tell she's black. It's really weird how we came out. But anyways, she'll get stereotyped as the angry black woman because she's passionate about being certain. Don't get me wrong. She could be angry, but anyways, and I could see that being an issue. Like we're trying to police how people talk and everything. And sometimes I hate to say it, but sometimes anger gets stuff done. Like you're like, oh, wow, I, I offended that person. But anyways. I guess the question is for somebody who does hope to make change, I have this conversation when I'm talking about science deniers and anti-vaxxers. How do you, how do you stay calm and foster that curiosity, right? Like when you meet somebody who might be anti-Semitic, for example, how do you do that? Has it taken years of practice or therapy or what? Well, maybe the 
my background as a psychotherapist helps. Mm. I was a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. And one must remain neutral, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I had to maintain the, the, the conviction that I'm not an expert on how anyone should lead their lives. And my task is simply to help them understand themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm sure those professional habits, um, play a role. It's also something temperamental about me. I'm, I'm not, I'm often just not very volatile person. Yeah. And, but finally, I think perhaps most importantly, I just don't think it, it helps, you know, like yeah. in, in all of these efforts, I think we really need to keep our eyes on the prize. What are we trying to achieve? And although it can feel good and feel righteous to to, to, to shout or to condemn or whatever. I think we need to check with ourselves. Is this the best way to try and secure what we're trying to secure? Mm -hmm. uh, now, maybe it is, uh, I, again, I, no one knows really the answers to these questions, but I, I feel that I get a lot further with people. If, if I'm kind. I believe in kindness anyway, in respectful of them as human beings. I don't have to be respectful of their beliefs and, you know, aware that everyone has the potential for change. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to essentialize them. Let's yeah, as you know, bad to the bone. Yeah. They could change like Derek yeah. changed. Yeah. And I, I, you know, that could, that could have something to do with it, that, that psychoanalytical background, right? Like, for example, my mom's a psychologist, I'm a huge psychology and mental health guy. I worked in treatment and, and like you said, I think that's key too, that people can change. I, I see this all the time, you know, when you, when even conversations about cancel culture, where someone's like tweet from like 10 years comes back and, you know, but you know, I was a drug addict until I was 27, I got sober in 2012. I'm an example of how someone can change. And I worked in treatment. I've seen how many people can change, but you know, it's almost like I, I wish more people had that experience and knew that there is hope that someone can change their views. But, you know, like you said too, um, how, how often does this anger and rage get stuff done? I'm sure there are instances of it, but I, for example, I used to have massive anger issues, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, getting sober and I got sober through 12 step programs. And I remember my sponsor always asking me like, how's that working out? You know, like, you know, my, my anger leech. And I sat back and I had this like aha moment. I'm like me yelling at people has never worked. I've never just screamed in someone's face. And they were like, you know what? You're right, Chris. Boy, and I, yeah. Yeah, I think that was part of like my aha moment, but you know, it, it's also interesting. There's a new book. Uh, that came out. I believe she's a philosopher too, but it's called A Case for Rage. I believe. Yeah, I should cherry. She's yeah. Friend of mine. Yeah. Have you have you read that yet? By I chance, have or not. you born to? So to. yeah, I'm curious what's what's in there and what that book's all about. So I'm probably gonna pick it up pretty soon. I think I might have actually got sent a copy. But anyways, um, I kind of wanted to ask you a question too about essentialism. Could you touch on something interesting where you're talking? You could be talking with somebody, then you mentioned that you you're Jewish mm -hmm. or something like that. So. Obviously I look, I look very white, right? I, I, like I get, you know, sometimes people think I might be Middle Eastern or I've been confused yeah. or Hispanic <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. So my, my, uh, my family, uh, my, the black side, they're Creole, so they're very light skinned. I think that's kind of how it happened. But anyways, I've witnessed this kind of like essentialist 
switch in people, right? Uh, I was having a conversation the other day where it's almost like I'm this undercover person because sometimes people say some really racist stuff around me and they don't because they don't realize I'm half black. But anyways, here's a funny story. I don't know if I've ever said it publicly. I was talking with this girl for a while back in my single days. I'm with the love of my life now. But back in my younger days, I was talking with this girl and I think we even went out a couple of times. But anyways, at some point, conversation brought in and we were talking about family. She finds out I'm half black and she she pretty much ghosted me. She was gone, right? And that was that was interesting to me because it's like this switch flips. And I'm sure you've had some experiences with that. And what what do you think that is? Even from a, uh, an analytical, you know, like thinking about the mind, like how can that happen so quick? Like I've known you for so long. I know all these things about you. I've seen all these, but you find out there's one aspect and it just, it switches. Yeah. Well, you know, this, this is obviously from, from what you've said anyway, it, it, it seems obviously the case that this person had these strange beliefs about race mm-hmm. that are false. Right. So what she, what she did, I would imagine is, it, I would imagine that she she thought to herself, and that's happened with lightning speed. I thought he was one thing, but he's another thing. Mm. In other words, everything she knew about you was thrown into question because now she's attributing a black essence to you. Mm. And obviously she had some derogatory um, ideas about blackness. Mm-hmm. So you were revealed to be the the predator or the monster or whatever it is that she had in the back of her mind uh, that she associated with, with black people, black men. Yeah. It's, it, it's really curious, but, and it's, it's interesting. And Hey, maybe I planted a, that seed of doubt that you were talking about, maybe. you know, with her and, uh, yeah, because, you know, there's so many things because I, I look at it across the board. Like there's the essence of drug addict, right? Like maybe somebody finds out I'm sober or there's the essence of like a criminal, right? Somebody, you find out this great person you work with, a man or a woman, you find out they did time or something awful yeah. they did. And it's this weird urge. And I don't know, do you think, like I hear debates about this. Do you think that education and awareness is like the key or is it more of this like, do, does the person have to want it and have to put in work to start uh, fighting back against these these kind of psychological urges or even the the cultural stuff that they were raised upon? Uh, well, I don't think there is one one key. I think both mm. are and 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 more as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, you know, given that we grow up in this society, we're all marinated in beliefs about race mm-hmm. and our, our heads are marinated in it, right? It, the stuff's in there, right? So, so that implies that we have to be really vigilant and track ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for some people due to their life trajectories, uh, it, it's much easier than for other people. But, yeah. you know, I, I think of some of the, the kids that I grew up with in the deep South, um, I wasn't part of the culture. My family moved down from New York city. Mm. Uh, I wasn't acculturated into the, in, in, into the deep South mindset, but some of the you know, kids I grew up with, how could they not have racist beliefs and how could they not 
you know, if, if, if they recognized how incorrect these beliefs are, how could they not, not have to struggle with mm -hmm. that? Of course they, of course they, they would have to, that doesn't mean they're doomed. Yeah. It, it just means that, look, when you've got this kind of stuff, when you're in a culture with such a horrible, horrible racist history as our culture, mm -hmm. um, when you're part of that legacy, um, it's, it's difficult. It, 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 it takes yeah. effort. And yeah. one of the things that education really helps with, I think, is to get people to see where this stuff came from and mm. why it's worth struggling with. Yeah. I, I think one of the, the, the books that helped me out the most and just kind of broadened my view on this was when I read Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind, right? Because like you talk about, you know, being from New York and growing up in the South and, uh, you know, although there's some debate around uh, Haidt's you know, moral kind of taste buds theory, and, you know, and uh, all this stuff. Uh, it helped me understand, like, you know, someone, I was, I was born in Southern California. No, I was born in Central California, moved down to Southern California, lived in Vegas most of my, most of my life. I've been in very West Coast, liberal areas. I've grown up, you know, without religion and everything. And I was reminded that I had to think about where these people were raised, uh, you know, what was being talked about in their households. And I think it helps me kind of, cut them some slack because if you're raised in a certain environment you don't know you don't know what you don't know you're you're kind of in this this kind of bubble you know what i mean and it, it's difficult for people to see that so do you i, I guess that you know something i was wondering with with you being you know an uh an educator have you seen any kind of switch like in any students who maybe like you know they're you know they've traveled or anything have has education helped them overcome some of these biases, beliefs, possible dehumanization? I, I, well, I, I like to think so. <laughs> you don't know. Um, I'd have, have to talk to them 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. But I certainly, I, I've spent a lot of time working out how to teach my course on race and racism. Oh. And I do think that for most students, it has a, a positive effect on their attitudes. Mm. Am I certain? No. Is it, do I know it's lasting? No. But, yeah. but I, I think it's, from what I can see, it's, it's, it's beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would hope if somebody's at least paying attention for, you know, the semester or semesters there with it, that seeds planted and hopefully it grew. But uh, I, I, I have a little bit more of your time and something I always wonder, like I was mentioning earlier, there's so much stuff to worry about and everything. And I'm always, I, I guess I try to like prioritize and put things like in order, like how much should I be worrying about this and this and this? So in your opinion, uh, it's 2021, right? We've made so much progress. We got past, you know, uh, you know, like public lynchings and everything. Uh, World War II is over and all these things still exist, right? But to a lesser extent, because you get somebody like Steven Pinker, who's like, hey, we've made progress. So in your opinion, like it's 2021. And I guess this is a question on a global and then like, uh, uh, you know, national level. How big of an issue do you see dehumanization or is this kind of, is your work kind of more preventative? Mm. Um. I, I, 
yesterday, it seems like I'm changing the subject, but I'm not. I had a <laughs> teacher in my race and racism class, a wonderful African-American philosopher named Darian Pollock. And he was talking to the students about ancient Egypt and said that civilization lasted for thousands of years, thousands of years. They had little intervals of centuries, close to a thousand years, in fact, where foreigners occupied them. And so mm -hmm. it's an immensely long stretch of time. And I think we have to be really wary about operating um, with too limited a conception of timescales, mm. right? So there are people alive now who were alive when there were spectacle issues, 1930s, mm -hmm. they were, they were kids when these horrible things that I described in the book occurred. That that's yesterday. In fact. Slavery was yesterday. It's, I sometimes think that when I was growing up in the deep South and there were elderly black people, you know, sitting on porches, they were, mm. these are probably sons and daughters of enslaved people. Um, so dehumanization is relevant now. Yeah. Relevant now mm -hmm. because we have to. First of all, it, it still happens, right? Yeah. Uh, and it still happens all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, but second, just because it's not as salient in right now, 2021, that says nothing about five years from now, 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And there's every reason to think this is going to become an extraordinarily dangerous problem in the decades to come. And mm -hmm. my concern here is climate change Ooh. and the effects on global human society, particularly with respect to refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's actually, I think a matter of some urgency to understand the nature of dehumanization. And that's why I'm writing all these books and yeah. trying hard as hard as I can both to understand this perplexing phenomenon and to explain it in a way that's accessible to lots and lots and lots. Yeah, I think, I think that was, that was perfectly said. And, you know, uh, I definitely agree that we, we have this kind of poor concept of time, right? Because when I, when I hear these arguments and, you know, there's been all these debates about critical race theory and so many things. And you'll often hear this whole like, that was, that was forever ago. And this was a long time ago. Like my mom, my, my mom, this little, this little Sicilian lady, she's got some spunk in her, but anyway, she has two fake front teeth because she was regularly beat up for dating black men, right? Like that's, that's how short of a time period this yeah. was because there's patches in central California where uh, you know, it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more farmerish, racist, <laughs> and that's kind of where she grew up. So I, I look at that, I'm like, there, you know, when my mom and dad got together, we were just barely, barely getting into the biracial 
relationships. So I definitely agree. And when you mentioned refugees too, with all the conversations that just happened within the last month or two with uh, Afghanistan and all these other things, yes. and you hear about Haitians trying to come through. Oh, yes. Talk about dehumanization. I mean, yeah, the, the guy on the horseback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, was, that was terrible. And of course, we mustn't be too local either. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sitting in New Hampshire, you're sitting in uh, Vegas. Vegas, yeah. But look, you go down to Alabama or Mississippi and, and you will see it's not all that different from, from 60, 70 years ago. Um, and worldwide now, we still have this upsurge in, say, quasi-fascist regimes. Mm-hmm. India, the largest democracy in the world. Brazil, um, it's, it's, it's really very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And in our country, politically, I think we're in much greater danger than when Trump was president, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, the, you know, that a substantial majority of Republicans think that Biden isn't legitimate. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Um, and the efforts to uh, combat so-called critical race theory, which is basically efforts to deny the horrors of, of, of American history. I think that's very sinister. It's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's very, very worrying. At any point, things can take a plunge for the worst. Yeah. So that's why we have to be on top of these things. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, like I said, I, I do my best to stay optimistic, but there's all these conversations about, you know, the upcoming just midterm elections and everything. And it yeah. seems like we're in a very weird place, but I guess that, that, and that's a great transition. I only have a couple more quick questions for you. <laughs> there's such an issue with political polarization right now, right? It's so difficult for people to even have conversations. And I'm curious your thoughts when we see some of these extreme, the extreme issues of political polarization, would you consider any, any of these aspects as dehumanization, since we were talking about definitions earlier? Uh, like, do, any, do, we, do you think anybody dehumanizes the other side? Or do you think we'd classify that as something else? Uh, well, po- political polarization, all on its own, Stops falls well short of dehumanization, mm. but in some of the more extreme forms, uh, yeah, there's a certain amount of dehumanization that goes on. I think that we are on the road to actually to this is going to sound really strange to racialization, which mm. is precursor to dehumanization. So when one political group regards another political group as fundamentally and unalterably different from themselves, mm-hmm. possessing a, a, an inferior and dangerous essence. Yeah. That's race by another name. Mm-hmm. And, and if things were to get really bad, that could certainly tip over into quite explicit demonization. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, that's kind of where my concern has been is this kind of essence, right? That, that, that was like, we're getting in a weird place because 
people are splitting so much and it's so difficult to even see the other person and consider their views. It just turns up and just the weirdest things seem to be getting politicized in the last couple of years. And I'm like, oh, wow, like this is leading into a, a bad path. But to end to end on a, a, a lighter note, I guess the question is, uh, and you kind of you kind of touched on this, you know, the between uh, on inhumanity. And this book, so for Making Monsters, even though it gets a little bit more into studies and research and stuff, when you're writing this and it's about to come out and everything, who are you hoping picks up this book? Like, who is the the audience you have in mind? Is it is it professors? Is it politicians? Is it young people? Is it parents? Like, who who would be ideal to start getting this and spreading the message and educating people? That's a very easy question to answer. I want everyone to pick up this book. <laughs> yeah. This is a book I've written with the idea that it communicates to, to any reasonably intelligent person. You don't have to be an academic or, or, or anything like that. But it mm-hmm. also has something to offer uh, scholars. Um, so it's a, kind of a crossover there mm-hmm. and policymakers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'd put it this way, being an academic, people expect me to write for fellow academics. I'm not interested in writing only for th- fellow academics. Mm-hmm. That's, I think a waste of time when we're dealing with urgent and important issues like this. So. Yeah, academics. I've got a bunch. There's lots of juicy content here for you, but I'm more interested in a much, much wider uh, readership who will, you know, be interested and and take the lessons of the book to heart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, personally, I think I'm the opposite of an academic. I dropped out of college, (laughs) you know, during my addiction. I went back, but I dropped out. Yeah. Hey, if I, if I think if I can understand it and get the lessons from it and everything, like, I think it, you did a great job reaching like a broader audience. Cause I do read quite a few like books that are very focused towards the academic community and they're like a rough read, but no, you do an incredible job. So I, I really appreciate you coming back on to talk about this book. And I love that you're so passionate and you keep writing. I think I saw you mentioned on Twitter the other day, like possibly working on something else in 2023 or something like that. But for everybody who, uh, you know, is not only going to get the book, but they want to keep up with you and your work, where is the best place? Is it Twitter? Do you have a website? Where can oh, people find you? Twitter. Uh, and I can never remember my Twitter handle, but it'd be fairly I'll, easy. I'll practice. find it for you and put it down. Yeah, there. You know, <laughs> my website, davidlivingstonsmith.com. Um, those are the best, the best ways to, to track me. Beautiful. All right, David, thank you so much for coming on again. I I'm loving the book and yeah, I wish you all the success because like you said, it's an important message that we need to get out there. Thanks, Chris. It's always great talking to you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Livingston Smith about his brand new book, Making Monsters. And, and didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you in the introduction, like David is one of the most chill guys I've ever met, but yeah, I, I love chatting with him and i i'm so glad that there are people like david who are just like really into this work uh some of you you tuned in yesterday for um the, the episode with kathleen baloo about you know uh white supremacy and all that so these these kind of you know tie in together obviously but yeah please 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 head down in the description make sure you're following david and grab a copy of making monsters and david yeah he already has plans 
you know, for his next book and everything like that. So make sure that you stay tuned to all of his upcoming work. All right. But before I let you go, don't forget, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new to the podcast or if you're returning and you haven't yet, make sure you are following the podcast or subscribe, whether it's on Apple or Spotify or whatever. And if you like this episode, if you think this was a, you know, a good conversation that people should know about or any other episode that we do here, make sure you share it over on social media, spread the word. And if you got two seconds, if you got just two seconds that you could take, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review for the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. All that kind of stuff really helps out with the algorithms. All right. But if you want to um, check out some of the books that I have written, I just released two new ones. A couple of them are free. They're linked down in the description. But you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com, check out the books that I've written on mental health, addiction recovery, stuff like that. And lastly, there is an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. So yeah, the world can be a stressful place. Like when I talk with David and all these other guests and think about the chaos in the world, uh, as somebody with an anxiety disorder and, you know, I have a, a crazy head that gets to me, um, BetterHelp Online Therapy is a service that I personally use and I'm all about mental health. So if therapy is something that you can benefit from, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's affordable online and when you use it not only do you get some good therapy with a licensed therapist for a decent price but some of it comes back and helps support the podcast all right but anyways another huge huge thanks to david for taking the time to come on again make sure you follow him make sure you grab a copy of his new book and for the rest of you i hope you have an amazing rest of your day and stay tuned we have some more great episodes coming up just give you a little preview we have an episode coming up tomorrow about a brand new book where we talk about issues with women's health care how it's affected by sexism and racial issues we have an episode talking about science denial with two two authors of this book and we dive into the psychology of it then on friday we have john mcwarder to talk about his brand new book woke racism all right so it's a crazy week Make sure that you're staying tuned. And yeah, you'll never miss an episode if you're following the podcast and you're following me over on social media, all right? But yeah, have a great rest of your day and I'll see you tomorrow.